0: Good morning. I know, I'm, I'm not Mike. Uh, but it'll be okay, I promise. Okay, go ahead and open your Bibles to uh, Romans chapter 1. We're going to be starting in Romans 1 this morning. Uh, we're actually going to spend most of our time in Romans chapter 3. But we need to start in chapter 1 in order to get the right jumping off point for where we're going to ultimately land in Romans chapter 3. Uh, but before we get started, I do want to go ahead and pray. Uh, so if you'll pray with me, and then we'll jump right in. Jesus, we just come to you right now uh, as your humble servants. Lord, we want to hear from you. Uh, Lord, and I confess that I am, I am nothing apart from you, Lord. So I ask that you would speak your words through me this morning, and that you would impress on our hearts what you want us to know about you and what you have done for for us so that we can rightly worship you, Lord. Lord, I pray the same for Hope Evangelical Free Church and Pastor Josh Swanson that you would speak through him and impress on those people at that church what you want them to know about you, that they would also worship you rightly, Lord. I thank you for your universal church all the churches that worship your holy name, Lord. Uh, And I just pray that you would be glorified in your church today uh, and forevermore, Lord. Amen. Okay, so this morning's message title is Salvation Explained. And the reason for that is that I found in... Uh, talking with Christians, uh, talking with other pastors, hearing from other pastors, and even in observing my own life, that we have this tendency to hear that Jesus died for our sins and that through him our sins are forgiven, but without a proper understanding that becomes cliché, and we don't really understand exactly how that works. And we have a natural tendency then to focus on morality and legalism as a means of gaining God's favor and love. And we think then, because our understanding is that God's favor is based on what we do, we graduate in that thinking to hear Jesus died for our sins, and we think, well, surely it can't be that easy. Surely I must have to do something to make it easier for God to save me. And so we grow in that thinking to the point where even after we acknowledge that Jesus died for our sins, we think, well, I have to keep trying. I have to keep doing better so that God is more proud of me and so that God loves me because really he needs my help. And it's funny, but it's true at the same time. And what happens is we end up thinking that we need to earn God's favor, but there's a problem. We are sinners. And so we sin and we fail, and so because we thought that God's favor was dependent on our merit, now we think that God's favor is gone because we failed. And so then we try harder and harder to earn it back, and then we fail again. And this cycle continues, this cycle of thinking we have to earn God's favor, failing And trying all over again. And how many of us this morning can identify with that? I think if we were all honest with ourselves, we would all say that we all find ourselves in that place more often than not. And so what we can know is that's exhausting. It is exhausting, and it never gets any better when that's our focus. And I think too many Christians live in this cycle all the while missing the entire point of the gospel. So we're in the book of Romans, and the book of Romans is essentially 16 chapters of Paul laying out who we are, who God is, what God has done, and what we should do in response. Okay, That is essentially the outline of the entire book of Romans. And after a short introduction, he starts in verse 16 here in chapter 1, where he says, for i am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of god for salvation to everyone who believes to the jew first and also to the greek so what we find first in verse 16 is that the gospel empowers or the gospel embodies the power of god for salvation the gospel embodies the power of god for salvation Salvation does not come from anything else, and it can be found in no one else but God alone. And why is this? He goes on in verse 17 and says, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So we see in verse 17 the righteousness of God. His his goodness, his perfection, his justice, and his holiness are all encompassed in the idea behind that word, righteousness. And it's, for in the righteousness of God is revealed, in the gospel it is revealed from faith, for faith. Some of your Bibles may say this, or they may have a footnote at the bottom, where it says, beginning and ending in faith. Essentially, the way that it reads in the Greek is to say it starts and ends with faith and everywhere in between, nothing else. So what we need to recognize, first of all, is faith is the requirement for salvation. But what we also need to understand is that we have a natural tendency to say, no, faith plus something else. Faith plus my works, faith plus, plus my actions, faith faith plus something equals salvation. And what we need to all be on the same page about before we go any farther is that that is the very foundation of heresy. To take away from the person and work of Jesus Christ or to add unto faith for salvation are two indicators of heresy. And we don't realize that that's what we're doing when we add to faith, but we need to understand that's what it is. That's why Paul said to the church in Galatia, if anyone brings to you a gospel other than what we preached, let him be accursed. And that gospel that he was referencing that other people were teaching was saying, well, yeah, Jesus is all well and good, but you also have to add these works of the law to Jesus in order to really be saved. And Paul is saying, if anyone says that, let them be accursed. So what then is this true gospel that begins and ends in faith? Well, not so fast. In order to understand how good the good news is, we need to understand just how bad the bad news really is. Charles Simeon said, persons never value a remedy until they are aware of their disease. They must know their condemnation and misery before they will receive with gratitude the glad tidings of the gospel. You don't truly understand and appreciate the value of medicine until you have the very disease that that medicine is meant to cure. And when you understand just how much you need that medicine, it becomes very, very valuable, right? So... Paul essentially lays out for us just how bad the bad news is, uh, starting in chapter 1, verse 18, through chapter 3, verse 8. And now we do not have time to read through these, so I'm going to give you the fastest summary of all time of those verses. Essentially, Paul says there are three groups of people, and outside of any intervention, we all fall in one of these three groups. Period. Outside of something changing on our behalf, We are one of these three. And starting in chapter 1, verse 18, he says, The first group are those who heard the law of God, knew the law of God, and rejected it because they didn't want it. The second group are those who were given the law of God, accepted it, and thought they were following it. But Paul says, Just like the first group will be condemned, so you will be condemned as well. Because in thinking you hold to the law, in fact, you break it because you're a hypocrite. Because your heart is wicked. And then the third group are those who never heard of God's law at all. And Paul says, they too are without excuse and will be condemned. Because God wrote his law on their hearts. And we all fall in one of these three categories. But then someone might say, well, what does that mean for God? How is it fair then for him to condemn any of them? And Paul anticipates this response by saying, what then? Is God unjust by punishing these people? And he says, I speak in a human way, as if to say, this is the way a person would think, but it's not the way that God thinks, because our thinking is wrong. For us to question how God exercises his righteousness and justice is for us to say, God, you submit to what I think of you, and if what I think is wrong, you, or if what I think you're doing is wrong, then you are wrong. And oh, that we would never say that about God. And how foolish is that? But yet, that's exactly what we do when we say, well, God shouldn't do that. Someone might say, well, that's not loving. Well, who's defining love? You or me or God? If God is the one who truly is loving, then God is the one who gets to define love. And God loves himself more than anybody else. And that's a very good thing. Okay? And because God is about himself and his, his love and glory for himself... We know that he will never compromise who he is for anybody or anything. And lastly, you might say, well, that's not very just for God to condemn anyone, especially those who haven't heard of him. Well, let me ask you this. Is this God's word? Yes, it is. And this is how he has revealed himself in his word. And so first of all, to say that is to say, God, you're wrong. You revealed yourself incorrectly. And that's just crazy to say that. But second of all, that statement is completely backwards. The real question is, why would God forgive anyone? If God was going to act on justice, then apart from some kind of intervention on his behalf, he should destroy all of us, regardless of what we have or have not heard. So, let's understand that God is the one who is just. He is the one who is righteous, not us. And so we submit to what he says. So, Paul anticipates, in verse 9, he anticipates a a response that I think a lot of us would have. Because you hear of these three groups and you think, okay, which one is better off then? Because we tend to think in hierarchies, so we think, okay, there are three groups— Surely one of these is in a better situation than the others. Surely one of these is closer to getting it right than the others. And Paul says, no one. Go ahead and read with me in chapter 3, starting in verse 9. He says, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And he's quoting the psalmist there who goes on to explain other ways in which it is proof of how no one seeks for God and no one is good. And what Paul is saying is, no one is righteous. No one will stand justified before God. No one is any better off than anybody else. And someone might hear that and say, whoa, whoa, whoa. I might be bad, but this guy over here is a bona fide idiot, and he is way worse than I am. He does all kinds of stuff that I've never done. So you can't tell me that I'm just as bad as this guy over here. Okay? This imaginary person that we compare ourselves to in order to try and justify ourselves. But here's the problem. The standard is perfection. So if I'm comparing myself to somebody else, sure, in my eyes, I might be doing better than them. But in comparison to perfection, how am I standing? Not very good. So it's, Pointless to try and compare ourselves to others, to justify ourselves, because God says that's not how I see it. But then you might respond and say, whoa, whoa, whoa. I do good things. I have good works. Surely God will take that into account when I stand before him, and I will look better to him because of the things that I've done. Well, turn with me to Isaiah 64, and we'll see what he has to say about that. Isaiah 64, verse 6, and what you need to understand about this context is this is what he's about to say is in the context of doing external good works to impress God all the while having a wicked heart, which is that not exactly what we're talking about right now. So Isaiah 64, verse 6. It says we have all become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment we all fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away now the point gets across pretty well already how it's translated there a polluted garment but i was curious what this word really means in hebrew and the word that is translated polluted garment I looked it up in every Hebrew dictionary and lexicon I could get my hands on. And a hundred percent of the time across the board every time it translated it as literally all our righteous deeds are as a polluted menstrual rag. That's gross, Right? And that probably makes a lot of you uncomfortable because of just the thought of that. Like, is he even allowed to say that up there? We're in church. (laughs) But it says it in God's word so clearly that's how God sees it. And it should make us uncomfortable because what he's saying is when you try to impress me, From a wicked heart that is just trying to look good before me? It's disgusting. And I want nothing to do with it. Jeannie and I have a dog at home that when he was a puppy, we let him outside one day, and he comes back to the door with something in his mouth. And I open the door and look to see what it is, and he's, he is like so excited. His tail's wagging. His whole body's shaking because he's so pumped about this gift that he's bringing me. Because, I mean, you know a puppy. They just wanna, they want you to be proud of them. They want you to be impressed by them. They want to make you proud. And so he's sitting there just like, look what I did. Look what I brought you. Isn't this great? It was a bird that had probably been dead for about two weeks. And it was covered in his slobber And I'm looking at it going, that's disgusting. And Jeannie's standing right behind me like, I just mopped. I don't want to clean that up. Don't let him bring that in here. But yet he's thinking he's bringing me a gift. And I'm looking at that saying, that's repulsive. That's us. And that's our best. When we think that we're doing so good before God... That's the best thing we can bring him. And how many of you in here would want that kind of gift brought to you? Answer, none of us. So ultimately, morality is a sham and a joke. It deals with the outside all the while, never addressing the inward problem. So Paul brings us to verse 19 where he says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. No one will be justified by what they do. No one. And why is this? Why, then, did God give the Israelites the law in the first place if they couldn't be justified by it? Well, there are a couple reasons. One, we're going to get to here in a few verses. But suffice it to say, the law was God's standard for perfection and for holiness. It revealed His standard and that He would accept nothing less. But it also revealed humanity's inability to keep it. And the fact that we could not save ourselves, we could never do enough, and we would need something greater to come and do it for us. Ultimately, it pointed to our need for a Savior. So the only place that we can come to then is to put up our hands and say, well, then who can be saved? And how can we be saved? So that brings us to the main passage for this morning, which is Romans 3, verses 21 through 26. Martin Luther called this passage the chief point and the very center of the epistle to the Romans and the whole Bible. It has been said of this paragraph in the Bible that if you understand this passage, you can understand the Bible. But if you misunderstand, the meaning of this passage, you will be in darkness concerning most of what the Bible is communicating. So we should take this very seriously and seek to find out exactly what it is that Paul is getting at here. So he starts, I'm just going to read the whole thing and then we'll go back through it. He starts in verse 21, but We need to feel the weight of that word right there. He just laid out this case that we could not defend ourselves against that left us absolutely hopeless. And then he transitions with, but. I mean, you can imagine standing before a judge as you have this case laid out against you and you're just waiting for your sentence. And then the judge says, but. But what? Right? Please tell me more. So in verse 21, he says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. We need to understand the law and the prophets. That phrase is the New Testament way of saying the Old Testament. Okay, When Jesus says it and when Paul says it, it's referring to the entire Old Testament. The law is the first five books of the Old Testament. The prophets, it's everything else, okay? So we need to understand, when he says the law and the prophets bear witness to it, it's the whole Old Testament. He says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. That, That word apart is total separation, total independence of. God's righteousness is not based on works of the law or the law itself. In fact, it's the other way around. The law is based on God's righteousness. But how have the law and the prophets bore witness to this righteousness of God? Well, there's a word for it, and it's a very nerdy word that you don't have to remember. You just need to remember what it means. The word is typology, okay? And typology in the scriptures is something in the Old Testament, a person, a place, a thing, an event, real as it was, true as it was, in God's sovereignty served to point to something greater that would come. It was a foreshadowing of or a lesser example of something greater that the Israelites were to look forward to. Whereas Moses led the people out of Egypt, led them out of their captivity in Egypt into the promised land that God had given them, Jesus leads the people of God out of their captivity to sin into the promised land of eternal life. Do you see that? That's typology. Moses and what he did pointed to what Jesus would do, where David was a true king after God's own heart and was promised that he would have an heir on his throne forever. Jesus is the true king who is God and his throne will never end. Okay, are, you, are you tracking with me? It is a something lesser that points to something greater that is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. So he goes on in verse 22 and says, The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Okay, I need to have, as my, as my wife would say, I need to get my nerd on for a minute. Okay? In the Greek, and this is important. This isn't me just wanting to have a nerdy moment. This is important. In the Greek, if we were to literally translate this verse, it would say, The righteousness of God through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ for all who believe. Now, it doesn't, that doesn't change the meaning. The reason for this is because the Greek is it, it it points to content, possession, and source. Okay? The the word that's used for faith here. What he's saying is the righteousness of God that is found in Jesus, through Jesus, and Jesus is the object of it. He is the source of our faith. He is the content of our faith. He is the object of our faith. He is everything. And we played no part in it. There is no way that we can read this verse and somehow come to a conclusion that I had some part to play in my salvation. That's ultimately what that means. That's why Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, Verse 8, he says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. We played no part in our salvation. And that's why he goes on in verse 10 to say that we are saved in order to do good works which God had prepared. We are not saved by them. So he continues in verse 22, back in Romans chapter 3. He says, For there is no distinction. Remember back to the beginning of chapter 3. God shows no favoritism. There is no distinction. All are condemned before him. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Paul just reiterates it to make the point. There is no arguing. There is no defense. You don't measure up. We don't measure up. When I was a kid, and my dad wanted to make a point, and essentially wanted to communicate, you don't get to talk back, you don't get to question this, this is how it is, and you only get to accept the reality of it, he would make a definitive statement, and then he would say, no ifs, ands, or buts, period. And that told me and my sister, who, you know, must have been the only two kids in the world to ever talk back to their parents. That told me and my sister, you don't get to have a defense right now. You don't get to argue. You only get to accept the fact that this is true. And that's it. And that's essentially what Paul's saying here. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If you are not perfect, you don't measure up, period. But thankfully, he doesn't put a period there. He continues and says, and are justified by his grace as a gift. Okay, what is justification? Justification is to be pronounced not guilty in a judicial setting. It is to have a case laid against you and have a judge say not guilty. But wait a minute. God is just. How can he justify us when we are sinners? How can he pardon me without punishing me? And how can he do this as a gift? Well, we have to read on to get the answer to that. Verse 24 continues, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Okay? Redemption is to be bought out. It is not merely to be set free. It is a purposeful Reaching in, buying out of your current slavery. Okay, so God justified me as a gift through the price that Jesus paid for me to be bought out of my slavery. Okay, but how? How did he pay that price? What did that look like and how is it that I don't have to be guilty anymore? Well, we find the answer to that question and quite a few others in verse 25. How is it that God can be just and yet pardon the sinner? How is it that God can be holy and righteous and declare holiness and righteousness on somebody who has never done anything to earn it? He says in verse 25, whom, speaking of Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I don't use the word propitiation a lot in my daily conversations. That's not really a word that we're that familiar with. But I will not do you the disservice of giving a simplistic definition of that word. Because in doing so, In trying to simplify the word propitiation, it loses some of its meaning. And it's impossible to define in one sentence what that word means without losing some meaning. So in order to figure out what exactly this word means and what it means for us, we need to go back to verse 21, where he says, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. What did I say about typology? It's something in the Old Testament that points to something greater. Well, to figure out what this word means, we really need to go all the way back to Leviticus 16. You don't have to turn there right now, but you really should read it. I mean, you should read the whole book of Leviticus, but chapter 16 has something in it that is incredibly important for every single person in this room. And to not understand exactly what takes place there, is to not really understand what took place on the cross. In Leviticus 16, we find laid out the provisions for the day of atonement, the day that occurred once a year where the high priest would go into the presence of God and make atonement for the sins of the people so that they could be forgiven. And what we find is there were two animals that were present. One was a sacrificial lamb... And one was called the scapegoat. The sacrificial lamb did exactly what its name implies. It was killed. It bore the punishment and the penalty for the sin, which is death. Its blood was shed and on it rested the wrath of God for the punishment of the sins of the people. And that is the primary meaning of the word propitiation. It is a sacrifice that bears the wrath of God for the payment of sin so that the sin is properly judged. But there's something else. If you look up that word in a Greek dictionary, you find another definition, and it's not an either-or, it's a both-and. It is the sacrifice, but there's also the word expiation in the definition, Now, you don't need to remember that word, but you need to know what it means. And we find the meaning of that word in the scapegoat. The purpose of the scapegoat was not to die. But in fact, the priest would lay his hands on the head of the scapegoat and would profess over it the sin of the people. And you can imagine, I mean, you can imagine him up here right now. If we were back in this time, proclaiming the sins of the people in the congregation. And imagine you hear him saying them out loud. Greed, envy, hate, murder, theft, adultery, abortion, fornication, or premarital sex, to put it simply. Murder. And you think, he just said, my sin. And you could imagine the weight that you feel as you see that animal that now embodies the very sin that you hoped nobody knew about. And the very thing that you were so ashamed of. Now, would you want that animal hanging around? Now that it is the very reminder of the thing that you are most ashamed of. Well, God knew that they wouldn't want that animal around. And the purpose of that animal was to be driven away. Thus, carrying the sins of the people away. And that's what propitiation is. And Jesus is the greater fulfillment of the Day of Atonement, and what happened on that day, because not only in his death did he bear the wrath of God and pay the penalty for our sins, but he also was the scapegoat who carried it away. And Paul so perfectly articulates this notion of propitiation in Second Corinthians 5.21. If you have a pen, write that down. And underline it in your Bible and memorize it. 2 Corinthians 5.21, where he says, For our sake, he, meaning God the Father, made him, God the Son, Jesus, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. But there's one other thing that goes along with propitiation. And we find it in this verse in Second Corinthians. Because if my sin was paid for and then carried away, at best, I'm neutral. Nothing's made me righteous yet. How is it then that we become the righteousness of God because of what Jesus did on the cross? Well, there's one more word, and that word is imputation. There's a verse in Hebrews chapter 10 where he says, For by a single sacrifice he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Now, being sanctified automatically means not perfect yet, because sanctification is the process of being made holy. And if I'm being sanctified, that means I'm not there yet. So how then is it that Jesus has perfected me for all time if I'm not perfect? Martin Luther called this the great exchange. Wherein Jesus not only bore our sin, had God's wrath poured out on him for the sin and carried it away, but in taking our sin away from us, he imputed to us gave us placed on us his righteousness and perfection this is why we sing in the song cornerstone when he returns with trumpet sound o may that i may in him that i be found dressed in his righteousness alone and faultless stand before the throne Because it is only in Christ giving to us His righteousness that we can at all stand justified before God. That's why when we think that we earn God's favor when we do good things, or we lose His favor when we don't do what we should, or we do what we shouldn't do, God says, My favor is not based on you. My favor is based on my son and what he did. And if you are covered in his righteousness, I see him, not you. And that's the only way that we are able to be justified before God, is that when he looks at us, he sees the finished work of Jesus. The only part that we play in this process, he tells us in verse 25, to be received by faith. We receive it and we respond to it. He goes on in verse 25 to say, This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. We need to see that first part. This was to show God's righteousness. Everything that he just explained was for the purpose of showing God's righteousness. He doesn't say, this was to show you how much God needed you. Because, first and foremost, remember God is all about himself. And that is very good for you and me. Because it means he is unchanging and he will never compromise himself. And so we can know that he will always remain the same and be faithful to his promises. Even more so, he says, in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. We got a question in the What does the Bible say about that series thing we were doing where you turned in your questions or topics you wanted to hear about? It was a fantastic question. The question was, how is it that David was a man after God's own heart when he did all kinds of terrible things? That's a good question. And we find the answer to that right here. And to see what this means, we need to go back to Abraham. Because it says of Abraham in the book of Genesis, he believed God, and God credited it to him as righteousness. What is credit? Is it money that we have? No, a credit card, it's an agreement between you and the bank where I have this from the bank, I don't have this money, but I'm going to swipe it, understanding that I will pay the bank back in full. And it is understood you will pay the bank back in full, right? Because bad things happen when you don't. But, What he's saying is, Abraham, I see your faith. I see that you believe me, and I will give you my righteousness now so that you stand justified before me, because I know my son will pay the price for it down the road, and it will be paid in full. And so what we see is God's faithfulness throughout the ages, going all the way back to Genesis 3, where he tells the serpent that the seed of the woman would crush his head. That all along, his plan was to redeem us through Jesus, and that never changed. And then we see in verse 26, it was to show his righteousness at the present time. Again, his righteousness. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God is still just in forgiving us because he fully punished our sin on Jesus. He is just because he didn't merely pardon our sin. He punished it, but he didn't punish us. He punished the sin and he redeemed us out of that sin. But not only is he still just, he is the justifier in that he is the only one who made it possible. And so we see that God did all of the work. We did nothing to earn it. We only receive it. So then what do we do with this? Well, first of all, I would say if you have never given your life to Jesus... Don't walk out of this building without doing that today. Because if God is who he says he is and he did what his word says he did, there could be nothing more important than you giving your life to him right now. And there is nothing you could say to me that would make me think it's not a good idea for you to do that. In fact... It's the best idea for you to do that because he is the only hope that we have. But what about those of us who have put our faith in Jesus and have been following him? Well, then verse 27 is for us. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. We have nothing to boast in, nothing to be proud of, The only thing we can boast in is Jesus, which really doesn't allow us to be proud at all. Because he's the one that did everything, not me. But some of you may be absolutely haunted by your past. Perhaps one of those sins that I named off earlier is yours. And perhaps... When you think of it, you absolutely shudder in shame because you can't believe you did that. You can't believe you said that. You can't believe you didn't do what you should have done in that scenario and you're haunted by the memory of it and the guilt that comes along with it. Perhaps you're that bride who wants to be married or will be married soon, but had sex with people before you were married and you want to know, can I wear white on my wedding day? Well, hold on. What did we just see that Jesus did? He bore the punishment for the sin, but he also carried the sin away so that just as God says in the book of Jeremiah, he will remember your sins no more. And then not only did he do that, but he gave you his righteousness and perfection in return. So I feel like the question is, why would you not be able to wear white? Because you're already clothed in white before God himself. And that thing that you are so ashamed of, who is there left to condemn you? If what the word says God did, he truly did. Answer is no one. Because Paul says in Romans 8, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because what is there left to condemn because he has already taken it all away? But maybe you say, but you don't understand. I can't forgive myself. I know that God forgives me, but I can't forgive myself. Well, I need to say this bluntly because you need to hear it bluntly. That's idolatry. Because that is to say that my judgment, my forgiveness holds more weight than God's. And we would never say that out loud, right? We would never even consciously think that. But that's what we are subconsciously saying when we say, I can never forgive myself. But what did we just see? God has justified us, redeemed us, paid the penalty for our sin, carried our sin away, and given us his righteousness in in response. So why can't you forgive yourself? You should be able to, and you must, because God already has. So then what do we do in response? Well, Paul like I said, goes over who we are, who God is, and what God has done. And then in in chapter 12, go ahead and turn there with me. In chapter 12, he picks up what we do in response to what God has done. He says in chapter 12, starting in verse 1, I appeal to you therefore, that therefore is, Therefore, after 11 chapters of everything I'm saying, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, because of all that God has done, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. In light of all that God has done for us, He deserves everything from us. This is the way that God saved us, not in some arbitrary way, He died for my sins. No, there, Paul lays out and shows us there was a very specific process and outcome that God intended and this is what he has done for us. So why would we give him any less than everything we've got? So you hear that and you have two options. You can either reject it and say, I don't buy it. I want nothing to do with it. Or you say, okay, I'm going to give God everything. My time, my money, my relationships. I'm going to give him everything because of everything he's done for me. The one thing you can't be is indifferent. Because to be indifferent is to reject it. This is how he saved us. So how will we respond? Will we respond by saying, because of what you've done for me, my life is yours. I leave the sins that I'm so accustomed to. I'm going to stop living for myself. I'm going to stop doing this thing that I know you abhor. And I'm going to give my life to you. Or do we say I don't want it I hope your response is the first one Because it's only through jesus that we can ever honor god Let's pray Jesus I thank you so much For who you are and for what you have done Lord, please don't let your word fall on deaf ears, but I pray that we would all be changed by you right now. Lord, just as last week we learned of confession and repentance and that confession is not enough, we need to repent, Lord, and turn and follow you in the way that you command. I pray, Lord, that you would reveal to each one of us today how we can turn how we can honor you in light of all that you have done Lord, please help us to start by worshiping you rightly right now as we sing that you would be so honored by the sound and the fragrance that comes from our worship in this place, Lord Jesus, you did everything and we thank you that you didn't leave salvation up to us You took it on yourself and made it possible. And now, Lord, please lead us in how to respond. Amen.